Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with David Kramer, founder of Sentry, to talk about exception tracking. Thanks for joining us, David. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you tell us what an exception is? The classical way of an, ex- uh, an exception might look like to the user is you're doing something. Let's say you're on Skype, for example, and the application crashes. What that actually is, is something the developer did in the code. It hit like a, a case where they didn't plan for it and the program doesn't know what to do. And the the typical way that, or rather, what that amounts to is the program either does a hard or a soft crash. So it's kind of an unexpected bug, but it's a bug in the code itself that the program doesn't know how to handle. Okay, I got you. So what's the like salient difference then between an exception and a bug? A good example of a bug is maybe this page was supposed to be blue instead of red. It's not something the program really knows about or cares about, but the user might see that as a bug. An exception, rather, would be like, I took a one and I divided it by zero, and that's like a classical thing you can't do in a program because it has to be logical, and you can't divide one by zero, so the program would crash at that point. So generally, the difference is users see bugs, and those bugs may not result in like an actual error, whereas an exception is an actual hard error. Okay, that makes sense. So, I mean, what might I have done as a developer to have caused this? A lot of times it's just something that you didn't consider. So like as developers, you're probably, you're building an application, you have a use case in mind. So let's say I have a form and I'm going to input something into it. And I'm only expecting people to put in the, the text hello and I'm going to output world. But all of a sudden somebody puts in something else and, you know, my program wasn't really planning for it. So it couldn't handle the, the case that you gave me when you, you put that other text in the form. And then it generates an exception. Okay. And so can you... Explain again what the user's experience is when this exception occurs. Does it vary wildly based on the the different cases of the exceptions? Yeah, so like I said, there's a lot of different ways this can appear. Um, in a desktop application, what is probably common is you'll you'll see the program completely disappear. It'll start back up and it'll say, do you want to send a crash report like uh, Firefox crashed or something like that? That's kind of how they work in desktop applications historically. But on the internet, they look very differently. So you may be visiting Facebook or some other website all of a sudden, and you see a page that says like internal server error. It's kind of the same thing. That's like a hard crash for them. But it actually goes even further than that. So there's many times exceptions will happen, and they'll just affect a small part of the page, and things might just like appear to not work correctly. So there's, there's varying degrees of visual impact, I guess you'd see. The easy ones are when the entire thing stops working and they give you a clear, like, there was a some kind of error message, but it takes many shapes and forms. Okay, so there's, I mean, obviously very disastrous errors, but it sounds like there are some kind of hidden, hard-to-discover errors then. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So the disastrous ones are obviously very easy to, to like, see and to understand, but you can imagine you're you're on Facebook and you have Facebook Messenger down in the corner and all of a sudden, like, it's... Maybe it's not showing all the messages or something else wacky is going on there, but everything else appears to be working right. So it could be just that little component is actually throwing like some kind of exception, and it's 
it's responsible for controlling its own exceptions. So when it crashes or when it causes a serious issue, that doesn't actually bubble up to anything else. And that's actually an example of a, a developer thinking ahead and like planning for that kind of situation. Whereas if like all of Facebook like kind of crashed as soon as the little message box had an issue, then that would be a, a more classical example of a, like a hard crash where the developer really didn't put any, any thought into what could happen. Okay, so when these exceptions happen, does that mean that we as developers are not writing code well then? I think a lot of it, what it comes down to is it's just hard to comprehend what can happen. So there's a lot of use cases, and this kind of goes with experience that developers will see and understand, and they'll be able to plan for those. And fundamentally, this is kind of what automated testing in the engineering world is about. Like you have you have robots and you're giving them like a script to kind of like to act out. And you're hoping that script kind of catches the bugs before anything else can happen. What ends up happening is there's a lot of cases that you would never have expected or never have planned for. Or just it's simply too much to consider when you're building something. Or alternatively, it may doesn't, maybe it doesn't even matter when you're building something because it's, it's just such a small chance of it, it being a problem. So fundamentally, what it has to come down to is like the robots have to be better for us to be better in this case. Right. And so, I mean, developers then can't really predict absolutely every uh, edge case that could happen here. Yeah, exactly. And even then, it, it wouldn't make sense, even if they could. The amount of time you'd have to put into dealing with those just wouldn't be worth it. Okay. So how then can I become aware of these, you know, smaller uh, errors that happen, the ones that don't crash everything and I get, you know, like you were saying, this internal server error. How do I identify that those have even happened in the first place? So what a lot of it comes down to is some kind of logging. And this varies in different ecosystems, but usually a developer will put like a, a line inside of their code that maybe when they're performing this operation that they're not sure about, if it fails, it'll like record this in the log somewhere. Um, and logging actually takes many shapes and forms. It could also be just their logging in, like inform, uh, informational messages like the user has logged in or something along those lines. And that's kind of a way that helps us kind of give a little bit of awareness into what's going on as well as a little bit of insight into how it affected things. And that's kind of the classical way that everybody's dealt with this problem. Okay, so that doesn't seem to to be a good way for me to actually get notified about things, though, if I'm just searching through logs. I mean, that seems very time-consuming and, I don't know, prone to error in and of itself. So uh, is, is there any other way for me to know as a, an owner of a piece of software that there are uh, bugs that are happening in it? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, there's actually, ignoring... Um, the many reasons logs are bad. The main reason logs are bad is because I, as a developer, I'm never going to look at them. So when I first started writing code and building like web applications, like somebody would actually come up to me and say, hey, you know, your website's broken here or something. I'm like, oh, no, I have to go fix this. And then I would go in to dig into the logs. Like there's obvious reasons that that's really poor. Like first off, the logs aren't going to give me nearly enough information because I probably haven't planned ahead for it to begin with. Secondly, my users already experienced it. And if you've ever learned anything about customer service, there's there's some saying like one in 10 customers who have a bad experience actually tell you about it. So like potentially you've hit a lot of um, these customers and, you know, kind of gave them a, a poor use of uh, your product. And now you've had one lucky guy come and tell you about it. So what we built, uh, my company Sentry, we built some software that actually makes this better. It tries to solve two things. So first I mentioned 
you don't have insight into what's going on. So you don't know until that person comes up and tells you things are broken. So we actually solve that like completely. Like we tell you when things are broken, we tell you when things are broken immediately. And again, these are exceptions and not bugs. So we don't tell you when the, the page was supposed to be read. We tell you when something hard crashed or a soft crash happened. Right. And, um, and by we, you mean Sentry as a service. Yeah. By we, I mean Sentry, the, the robots. Right. Um, <laughs> they they kind of figure this out for you. And more importantly, they actually sift through some of the noise. So you can imagine if you're a big website like Facebook or like a, a large application, you have a lot of users and you may have a lot of exceptions. And there's kind of like a linear curve of exceptions for the larger your customer base to the, the larger amount of exceptions. And that's always going to be true. And there's no reason to even try to solve that. So you end up with this problem where there's a ton of data and you don't really know what's important. Like you don't know if that, that error that the customer came up and told you about actually would have mattered normally. Like, is that the error that's affecting the most people? And it's a very important question, honestly. And so kind of the examples of what might matter to you is if you're Amazon.com, you very much care if there's an error with the billing flow or like with the ability to like check out and pay you money because it's like the most obvious thing that affects your bottom line. So like having the insight into those areas and knowing like these are kind of the exceptions that affected my billing versus these are like exceptions that, I don't know, maybe made it slightly harder to do some feature. Maybe there's like a chat feature or something. I'm right, sure, or I'm like, sure Amazon, yeah. Right, or recommendations or something. Yeah, like a recommendation or a review. Like those features matter a lot less than paying money, right? Right. So you, you need to sift through that and kind of like decide what's important. Also on the, the same line of that, we actually go in and we tell you every user that's affected as well as how many users are affected. So, and this is a true story in our case, we actually offer billing for Sentry. So if we hit a billing error inside of Sentry, it actually records to itself and it tells us about it. And because we know the email address of every user that has hit that error, we can actually follow up with them and recover those customers. So it becomes like a very good, like proactive sort of customer experience for a company. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's solving a lot of business problems and not just technical problems in that case. Exactly. A lot of it came down to like, how can we build awareness and insight into like the problems that are actually important? And then like going beyond that, there was a, we'll call it a hack, like a, a clever way to solve this, to move beyond logs uh, that was introduced. It's probably been around for a long time, but it became more popular in the last few years. Uh, what you would do is instead of just logging to a file, you might also like send an email to yourself. And that will tell you a bunch of information about the error. Maybe it tells you sort of how to fix it because you have enough information about what's wrong. But generally, it would give you a lot more information than logs themselves would. So another thing we try to do is we try to give the developer as much information as possible around that. You know, I, I already mentioned we give like the, the email address of the user affected. We also tell them a lot about like their actual code and how it's affected. And without getting technical, like generally what we do is we, we say like these are all the lines of code that had the problems, we, we tell them kind of like what the, um, I'm not sure a great non-technical way to, to go about this, but we tell them if there was a variable that is like, you can think of algebra, if there's a variable called color in the code that says it's red, and we actually, like, we know it's a problem if it's ever red, we actually tell you that. Like, we, we tell you that the variable was set to red. So you can very easily and very quickly reproduce that error and fix that error and then reach out to the customer. So we kind of took two stances, you know, the awareness and insight, which is hugely important, as well as kind of this like debugging thing to make it so developers can like reclaim those customers very quickly. Okay, that makes sense. I, I want to go back a little bit because uh, you mentioned the big reason why logs are bad, but why else are, are logs uh, a bad way to go and look for, for what errors are happening in your app? 
Yeah, so there's many reasons, honestly, and it depends on the company. So one very common example is uh, at a larger company, you have a lot of security controls in place. So you can't even access the logs. And even if you were to get access to the logs, they're spread out on like hundreds or thousands of physical servers. So you would have to go into these servers, find the correct log that actually has the data you're looking for, and then sift through it. And then some people have expanded on that where like they'll collect all the logs and put them in one place. But the sheer amount of data you have to dig through just to find what you're looking for is it's just like unreasonable. And then even when you do find what you're looking for, there's just not a lot of information attached to it. Like maybe you'll get a, a very simple, um, it's a very simple crash report. It doesn't tell you much. It tells you like the line of code that uh, was written that caused the error. And maybe if you're lucky, it will tell you like the URL or something similar. But overall, it just gives you a very little amount of information. Okay. So if I'm not able to do that as a developer, if I'm not able to sift through these logs, how is Sentry or the Sentry robots, uh, how are you able to sift through it? Yeah, so we actually have an aggregation scheme. So if there's an error that's, you know, I mentioned billing errors. Billing errors probably don't affect a lot of people because you would fix them immediately. But maybe you have something that's like the recommendations or something that's erring quite a bit. And, you know, typically in logs, that means it's just going to flood the log. If you emailed it to yourself, it's going to flood your inbox. So we actually go one step farther and we aggregate everything together. So you'll see that this specific exception, this recommendation exception has happened, you know, a million times. And as I mentioned before, we'll also tell you it's happened to these 100 users or it's happened on these like 100 servers or something along those lines. And a lot of it just comes down to like the signal and noise problem. Like, you know, once you're able to like collect all of the exceptions, it comes down to figuring out which ones are important and again, being able to sift through everything. Okay, that makes sense. So you talked about some of the information that you uh, surface around an error or an exception that you get. Can you... Tell me a little bit more about what information you might need to be able to figure out how to fix it. Yeah, so there's a lot of things. A lot of them become technical, but some of them are very simple. So traditionally, if there was like a bug report, which may a bug report may actually be a bug, uh, simple like the color's wrong, or it may be like there's a crash or something. But the bug report, a lot of times you would ask the user, like let's say what browser, what operating system they're using. Or you might ask them like what web page they hit to reproduce this or what time of day it was or something like this, like any number of questions. And that, those very much depend on your product. But what we actually do is we capture all of that information automatically. Like we'll tell you like 100% what browser it was, you know, what web page it was, all these kinds of things without ever having to interact with the user, which fundamentally means you should have enough information to know exactly how that bug was produced so you can actually fix it right off the bat versus the traditional cycle, which is you're going to have to go communicate with that customer because, honestly, they, they probably haven't given you enough information to solve the bug in the first place. And then more likely than not, there's going to be a bunch of back-and-forth conversations trying to get enough information. And then as a developer that's working on fixing the bug, you actually have to sit down on like your laptop and try to reproduce that problem and hope that you're getting it right. And maybe you get lucky and you stumble on it right away, but maybe you don't and you're sitting there for days trying to understand how the problem's actually created. So we aim to solve that as well. Okay, that makes sense. And I, I mean, I imagine that it's pretty difficult to get the like exact versioning information that a customer is using. You know, like what iOS version are you on and what version of the app do you happen to be using? I, I have to imagine that that's very difficult to get. Yeah, I, honestly, I couldn't even tell you what version of iOS I'm running. I'm not sure how you <laughs> even find out, right. let alone all the other like uh, 
items that could go into play there. Okay, and you said that we can try and use that information to then like reproduce the bug. What what do you mean by that? Um, yeah, so a lot of times what happens in for a developer is they have two environments, at least two environments. They have their their development environment, which is so like if I'm working on Amazon.com, I have like a a little like fake version of Amazon.com that I can develop against, and then I actually have Amazon.com, which is called production. So what will happen is I'm building everything in my fake environment, which generally the data is very different. So if I'm working on this recommendation system, I don't nearly have the level of data that is actually on the production system. So there's not as many books or as many products for me to like look and see if they're working correctly. There's not a bunch of data coming in for actual like reviews and stuff. So you end up with a, like a completely kind of different setup. And what that means is a lot of times you're missing the correct data to understand some of the customer's problems. A common example of this would be, I'm say I'm like a Chinese user and I'm accessing a website that is generally and predominantly like English speaking, English writing, etc. And I go to like put my name into a form and it errors. And maybe that form errors because like they never considered handling Chinese characters. Now, if if you were to have that in a log, it would be a little bit cryptic to say the least. And that's kind of one of the easier examples. You can imagine many other cases where the input changes drastically and you're just not really sure what it is or like how to come up with that input that caused this crash that you're seeing. And so by like what we do is we capture all that information as well. Like we capture what that input was, say, to that form where they were trying to change their name and we tell you what that was, which, you know, goes one step further to help you reproduce it more quickly in your your local environment, like on your laptop or whatever. Okay, and you you talked a little bit about uh, automated testing, which is this idea that, you know, you kind of have machines just running test cases that you know work in your application to make sure that, you know, you don't have these sorts of uh, regressions or errors come up again and again, right? So, like, we know that we have a, a working code base, but is it possible then to use this information that you get from these bugs to improve the automated tests that you have? Yeah, it absolutely is. We actually toyed with the idea of generating your tests for you. Oh, really? Turns out that's a little bit complicated. But the idea is, it, you know, a test fundamentally is just saying, given this input, does the output match what I want it to be? And we give you the input and we tell you what the error was. So I realistically, you throw that input into a test, you put it the expected output, and then you just go fix the code. So by, by having just that small amount of information, you should actually drastically be able to improve the quality of your product. Okay, that makes sense. So let's say that uh, I've just got an exception notification from Sentry. What should I do about it? Like, what's my next step? So I think the next step here for most people is, do you ignore it? Which, you know, more often than not, we do. Or do you investigate it more? And the investigation, honestly, it just comes down to like, is this important or not? For us, you know, I mentioned billionaires are super important. Like, we want to be able to collect money. Another error that's super important is like, when somebody signs up for your product, you want to make sure that there's no issues when they sign up. Like if they hit an error on the, when they're like filling out their username and password, like they may never come back to your product. And while you may or may not be able to recover that person, you want to prevent anybody else from having that like deterrent. So a lot of it comes down to like, like prioritization of errors and things like that. And that's, I'd say that's very business specific, but the way we think about it is like, what's the effect of this? Like, how does it affect the bottom line? And those are either, it's a monetary value, like a very clear monetary value or it's overall like customer happiness. And that could be that it maybe it affects, you know, one in 100,000 customers. And that's like, 
probably not a super high priority item, but if it affects maybe 10% or even more than that, that's pretty serious. Right. And I mean, I guess it also sort of depends on who that customer is. And if you're giving us information about that customer, I mean, maybe it's our biggest customer and their revenue is, you know, like 10% of our company, but maybe we have a hundred thousand customers, you know, I, I think, yeah, it certainly depends on the the business needs. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, having more information about it certainly seems uh, good. I- I'd like to go back a little bit to talk about the other like side effects that you might see from these errors, because I'm a little unclear. You know, I-, I know obviously there's like the super obvious things, but is there anything else that could happen when an exception gets caught? I mean, we could just walk through maybe a couple examples to clarify that a little. Yeah, so one example might be you're on Facebook and you're looking at the Facebook Messenger and you go to send a message. You type in your message, you hit send, and it says it failed to send. Would you like to retry? That actually is probably the developer thinking ahead and saying, you know what, this might error. If it does error, I'm probably going to record that somewhere, somewhere like Sentry. And then I'm going to build in this like retry functionality because, you know, maybe it's just a, it's a, a behavior that isn't always consistent. That can happen for any number of reasons, but maybe it's something where if you do hit retry, it will probably work. Just like if you hit an error on a web page and you hit refresh, it may or may not work, right? So that's kind of an example of a good error that's been dealt with safely. There's many kinds, obviously. Um, most of them will end up either that the entire web page just crashes, or there will be a little simple thing that says there was a small error with the action that you just performed. Right. I, I actually, um, I think I have an example of an exception that I was working on just in development of an application recently that never would have been user-facing um, and, in fact, was only caught uh, through Sentry because I am a Sentry user. <laughs> and I, it was, uh, I think, a Stripe uh, webhook. And for those who aren't familiar with what a webhook is, it's this idea that you've got some URL on your application that some other application will hit. And it's basically automated. It's just machines talking to machines. And in this case, it was that like a credit card, I think, ended up expiring. And I got this notification that the credit card expired, but I wasn't handling it correctly. And of course, the user whose credit card that was is never going to be notified about this. At least, you know, my code wasn't written to notify them that, hey, by the way, like my software didn't do what I expected it to do. But I did end up getting a notification from Sentry that let me know hey, like your code did not handle this correctly. Is that one of these sort of non-user facing examples, do you think? Yeah, that's definitely a good example. That is, I would say, a lot easier to understand. And there's there's any number of situations because products are, they're very complicated these days. And you end up with these like many systems of machines that are just communicating to each other. Stripe, the payment processor communicating with my product is just one example of those. But those are actually like very, very common problems. And I would say more often than not, the errors you're seeing are actually machine-to-machine errors. So the customer would never even report those to you. Right. So it sounds like, you know, without this sort of monitoring, we're probably going to end up in a situation where like the majority of our application, you know, I think the, what's the opposite of the tip of the iceberg? Everything that's below the ocean, we're not seeing, right? That's not the customer facing stuff. Yeah, and that's, and that's absolutely true. And usually, like, you can get away with some of that. The Stripe example is arguably a more important case. Many things, it'll be like, uh, something's not working, and eventually it will bubble up to the customer, usually because the machines are doing some kind of processing that, you know, eventually surfaces in a feature, and maybe that feature just doesn't update, 
or it becomes wrong, but it is eventually visible to the customer from many points of view, I'd say. Right, but it's kind of hard at that point to figure out where it came from originally. Yeah, definitely. And it could be days or weeks or even months later before that came up. Right, and so how do you try and track that down if you're in a situation where you only have, you know, logs to sift through? It is very difficult, to say the least. Right. So you said that Sentry is obviously able to catch these exceptions. Why is it not possible for it to catch bugs? So a lot of what it comes down to is the exceptions are defined behavior. Like, you haven't told us what your exceptions are, but the the programming language, the the thing that wraps the program, it knows what the exceptions are. And it's able to, like, capture those and tell us about them. Whereas a bug, like, if you told us the web page is supposed to be blue, I mean, we could tell you when it's red. And then, effectively, you could create an exception out of that bug. But it's fundamentally because the program has these these laws and these rules that govern it, and you're violating them in one shape or form, and we're able to know about that, whereas we're not able to know about general like user interface bugs, I would say. Can you dig into that a little deeper? I mean, what prevents you from knowing, you know, what the, like, let's say that I am, as an example, you know, I expect the button to turn from blue to green after I click it. Why can't Sentry know that that was the expectation? You're saying it's because I I didn't tell it explicitly in this case? Yeah, fundamentally, there's no rules that govern what the result of that click is supposed to be. And a lot of the times when you would build these rules, which would be how you'd solve this, you would actually build them as these like automated tests. So you would catch them much before Sentry would even know about them. But in theory, and while I wouldn't say this is practical, you could write rules or production level tests that check these kinds of things. And if they fail those, they throw some kind of error. And that would be a way to turn those bugs kind of into exceptions. But again, it comes down to like most of the time you you simply haven't considered them, especially when it comes to visual things. Okay, that makes sense. So what can we do then to minimize the chance of exceptions occurring? Fundamentally, it comes down to the the automated testing. It's it's something I think that uh, developers, they learn one of two things when they start writing code. It's either they learn nothing about tests or they go into it like very test heavy. And it can actually take a, a lot of time for a developer. So the reason some software is like seems like it's less buggy than other software is probably because they've actually had or they've been allowed to spend a lot more time focusing on like those tests and uh, the automated like stability stuff. And this is like a trade-off. You see a lot of startups and similar small companies where it's like, well, we need to ship our product because we need to like make this a business and everything. But the faster or like it's a trade-off of like how much time you spend on the quality versus how fast you can move and as well as the resources that you have available to you. So somebody like Facebook obviously can spend a lot more time on the quality side, whereas somebody that's just like an up-and-comer who maybe only has a few developers probably isn't going to spend as much. Right, and you mentioned the example of uh, like Chinese character being put into an input field in a form, for example. So, I mean, should I be writing tests for Chinese character input and Arabic language input? I mean, how far do I go? I honestly don't think you should be writing any tests around any of that unless that's like your customer base. I think you you make the decision on, you have to, it's like the, the cost trade-off, right? Like you're going to invest a lot of time. What's the reward? If, you know, maybe eventually you're going to have like 
you know, 20% of your customers being like Chinese or Arabic or any language that's, you know, not basic English characters, then maybe you decide to invest the time. But maybe also you come back and revisit it later when you're actually able to invest that time. And I, I think that's like, that's a hard trade-off and it's very, very specific to each individual business. But you just got to decide like what's worth your time. And something like Century kind of affords you a little bit of the ability to say, you know what, like I, I'm going to take a little bit of the risk because I'll at least know about it right away when it's a problem. Okay. Uh, are there any common things around exceptions that we should all be testing for that's worth everyone's time? I do think character, like Chinese characters, for example, which is commonly known as like encoding or Unicode, like that's a very easy thing to like just throw into like automated test cases. Um, and it can flush out a lot of bugs. Outside of that, there's a lot of areas. And as a developer, you generally, I would say the more experienced you are as a developer, the more you just identify these immediately. But one common area is that you have some kind of network communication. So in your case, where Stripe is communicating with your application, on Stripe's side, they probably have a number of tests and number of checks in place to say, you know what, I know that when I push this webhook to this customer, I know that their application can fail, and I'm going to take care of that. And as like you become a more experienced developer, you see more and more of these. Like So it becomes more proactive and less reactive when you're writing the code. Right. I mean, I think from our perspective, you know, we'll test for... Uh, like invalid credit card number input or invalid emails or things of that nature. And I think, you know, it becomes almost second nature when you develop a feature around that sort of thing to just have in mind the sort of edge cases that you'll end up coming across. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you say in general that it's a good thing not to trust user input? I would say it's it's hard to decide. Um, obviously, like user input is it's unknown and you should never trust unknown things. But there are a lot of like like checks and balances to deal with user input being scary. And I do think a lot of what it comes down to is understand that the input is going to be very, very dynamic and that you can't really control what it is for the most part and that you should be prepared for that. Okay, that makes sense. And it's funny that we dove into talking about automated tests a little bit here too because I feel like, in fact, probably... I don't know, half the conversations that we've had so far have ended up touching on automated tests in some way. And yet I do hear a number of developers out there, if you're, you know, a reader of Hacker News or something like that, that complain about automated tests and like they don't do them at all. Uh, what do you think is the reasoning behind that? Uh, I would think in that case, it's honestly probably people who just haven't had the experience. Uh, when I started, um, I started writing code 10-ish years ago, maybe a little longer and I definitely didn't write tests. I didn't even understand the concept of a test at that time. And it was only after probably like another five years where I'm like, okay, you know, this kind of makes sense. Like I'm tired of breaking things in production all the time. And I think what it comes down to is it's one of those life shattering experiences where like, oh, I did something so bad and I could have prevented it so easily. And for me, it was just like a big embarrassment when I caused like a serious production incident where we kind of took down everything. Because I pushed up a bug that it was just like me being lazy, realistically. And I think it just comes down to like you gain the experience and like comfortness with having tests. And for me today, it's kind of scary to write code without tests. Like I almost feel like I rely on them. And if I don't write them, nothing's ever going to work right, which is honestly more often it's true more so than it isn't. Right. And 
we had a really good interview with Flo Motlick of Codeship about this, and uh, he seemed to advocate that, and and I think I personally would too, that honestly, it doesn't take that long to get started with testing. You know, maybe maximum few hours to set up all of the infrastructure that you need to do it to write your first test, and you know, not to think that testing means that you now need to test absolutely everything. You know, it's it's a problem that you have to chip away at. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is definitely easier if you start early on. And one thing we try very hard to do is have like one big test that covers a lot of an area. And that's like a good enough start. And that's like the, it takes a little bit of a time, not a lot. Um, it does a lot for you in terms of like stability and quality. And then in the future, if you need to add to it, you've already set yourself up. So they like the intimidation of like, oh, I don't have anything yet. I have to do everything now. Like that's all gone now because you did choose to start it already. Can you give me an example of that like one big test that you're talking about? Yeah, so a good example would be if you load like the the Century homepage, like yesentry.com, like there's a test that says that page loads. It does nothing else. It just says, does the page load? And effectively that's saying, does it cause an exception at all when it loads? And like, we're not changing the page a lot. Like when we do, if we're going to change it, we're probably going to cause some like simple thing that would just cause it to not load at all. So that's like a good enough test for us. Um, and you can kind of imagine we have one of those tests for every single page in Century. And then a lot of them are more complex than just like we're rendering images and stuff. And now a lot of those are UI things that we're not testing for. But that's a different kind of thing, right? Right. Um, but you could imagine when you load part of the Sentry application, so say it's like the settings page. So say you're changing your, your username or something, right? We probably started with a test that just said, did the settings page load? And that was great. And then we expanded and we're like, okay, let's see, can I change my username on the settings page? And we, we like slowly add more of these, these like scripts to say like, is this new case valid? And when we had the first one, it was very easy to just like copy paste a little bit of that and like change it to be what we needed to like extend that test. So this idea of this one big test sounds to me like the notion of a, a smoke test. Is that right? It's very similar. Um, I would say what we do isn't a classical smoke test. Ours are more um, of what are called integration tests, but they're still fairly high level. We do a lot of assertions, whereas a smoke test may generally just say, does this load at all? Ours kind of says, does it load? Does it render the correct template? Just some very basic level things. Okay, that makes sense. And we talked a little bit about what users see when they see errors. Are there any best practices on how to handle the error display that a user is seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something we're playing with. Um, We're actually going to be improving on this soon. We'll announce that in the future. But what we recommend today is you should obviously have a, a page like, Try not to joke about things because you may have already lost a customer at this point, but have a page, apologize, or at least just be clear in that like there was an error that happened. If you're using something like Sentry or whatever, you can clearly indicate you've notified the developers of the problem. In our case, uh, and this is a Sentry feature, we actually show them a reference, like, like a 40-character string that they can show to the end user. And we say this is like your error ID. And actually, if you send, if the, the user then decides to like communicate upstream, they actually have ref- or this ID in front of them that they can give to the customer support agent, and then they can actually link that on the back end. But a lot of what it comes down to is just like be as friendly as you can and very clearly indicate that you understand that there's a problem and you've actually collected all the information to act on it already. And then in some cases, if it's a situation where you know 
that simply refreshing the page might be okay. And this doesn't always happen, but if you do, like give the user some next steps. Like if a, if a page reload is good enough or potentially helpful, ask them to do that. If you would like them to like contact you with more information, ask them to do that. But kind of give them something to reassure them that not all is lost when they hit this error. Okay, that makes sense. It's it's funny that that you mentioned the idea of like saying something funny. Um, I think I've been pretty frustrated with apps that I've seen in the past that you know I've hit some sort of an error with it, and they're like, "Oh, lol," you know, like, "Sorry, we screwed up." And you know that's not very comforting. I don't really feel compelled to continue using an application that laughs off an issue that to me is very serious. Yeah, and. Like I've seen both sides of it, and I think it it's okay to be a little cutesy with the page. GitHub is a product that has some like neat error pages. Like visually, they look really cool, and they have some nice art, but they're not laughing at you. I guess is the way to describe it. Right. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Sentry uses Sentry. Is that right? That is right. It's a little scary at times. Yeah, I mean, how do you? That seems. I feel dizzy uh, thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, we put a lot of effort. For many reasons, because honestly, if the bug's not in Sentry, or if the error, rather, is not in Sentry, we probably don't know about it. And it's even worse once you get used to using Sentry. So we try very hard to make it possible that we can record internal errors in Sentry as part of Sentry. Obviously, we can't do it for everything, so we do have to monitor logs. But for the most part, any kind of error that happens in Sentry, we actually get the same experience as any of our customers. Yeah, it sounds like inception exception tracking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, This has been a fabulous episode. Can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? Yeah, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, You may or may not want to. I'm sometimes not safe for work, but my handle is Zeeg, Z-E-E-G. You can also, uh, I have a blog, Kramer with a C dot I-O. You can probably just Google David Kramer and I'm everywhere. And you can also check out Sentry on GetSentry.com. We also have a matching Twitter handle at GetSentry. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, I feel like such a fanboy with some of our, our guests, uh, but Sentry is definitely another fanboy case. Uh, we've used you for, I don't know how long it's been now. I mean, you've been in the Heroku marketplace for like three years now. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, so basically three years at this point, and uh, we've loved you, so uh, I couldn't get a higher recommendation. And I think actually, Sentry, we're, we're putting out a um, like dev toolbox uh, list sometime soon, like a PDF that people can download, and unsurprisingly, you will find Sentry on there. So uh, <laughs> look forward to that. That's um, awesome. All right, well, thanks again, David, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, again, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.